And so may our hearts be ready right now to receive your word. And as we look at these things, that, Lord, that we would make application for our lives and for our church. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been looking at this section, of course, in chapter 1. Keep in mind that the outline of the book of Revelation is given to us in verse 19. And it was John that was told to write the things which you have seen, and that is chapter 1. John is exiled to the island of Patmos in chapter 1 because there was a government-led persecution by the emperor Domitian. And uh, tradition says that John there was placed into a pot of boiling oil. It did not hurt him, so Domitian cries out, get rid of him. And they banished him to this rocky, barren, isolated island off the coast of Turkey. And and it was called Patmos. It wasn't an island like Hawaii or Tahiti. It's rocky. It's barren. He's isolated. It's cold there. And John wasn't alone, though. And as we read in chapter 1, he was there in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he heard a voice, a loud voice behind him as a trumpet. And there he sees the glorified, the resurrected Lord in all his description that is standing in the midst of seven lampstands. And as we discovered, verse 20 tells us that uh, as the Lord has the seven stars in his right hand, those are the seven messengers to seven churches that are represented by the seven golden lampstands. And we know that as we've been going through chapter two, and we'll finish it, and we'll continue in chapter three of this book, that this is the second part of the outline is given to us. And that is not only write the things you have seen, that's chapter one, but you are to write the things which are, and that is chapters two and three, that is the church things, the church age. And as we look at these seven lampstands, which are seven literal churches, historical churches that existed in the first century in proconsular Asia, that area that today is known as Turkey, that Jesus turns to each one of those lampstands, those churches, and he writes a letter to them. John has taken dictation, chapters two and three should all be in red letter in your Bible because this is Jesus speaking to these churches. And the churches that are described here that they are not the only churches in proconsular Asia, but we see that Jesus selects these seven churches that have these characteristics here. We also know that another application, that there are those who make the case that this represents seven successive periods of church history, beginning with the apostolic period, the church at Ephesus, and that the church had these general characteristics. Not every church, you know, was like the church at Ephesus back then, but generally it represents what we read here in the book of Ephesus, that they were ones that stood on truth, and they were a working church, and they had perseverance, and and they stood fast to that which was true. That represented the first century church from the time of Pentecost to the end of the first century. And so, you know, that was a characteristic of uh, many of the churches. And, And of course, as we go through these seven churches, we see that they all had different characteristics, but it represented the apostolic age. The church of Smyrna, the second church, represents that time of persecution. And of course, Smyrna was the church that was persecuted very heavily. And it represents that time from about 100 to 300 AD, where there were millions of Christians that were put to death 
for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then last week we looked at the compromising church. And the compromising church, Pergamus, speaks of that time from 313 A.D. when Constantine declared Rome to be the, the official religion of Rome, Christianity, that is. And, and what happened is Smyrna, of course, being a persecuted church, as Satan tried to persecute the church, uh, it was, you know, the blood of the saints, Tertullian writes, was the seed of the church. And it grew strong, and it was strong during that time. But we know that as Satan, he could not defeat the church. And, of course, it was Peter that was told up at Caesarea Philippi, as we read uh, in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, that he would make that confession of faith as Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And now you shall be called Peter, little stone, that is Petros, and upon Petra, the, the rock of your confession, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Satan, knowing that he couldn't defeat the church, he decides to join the church. And in 313 AD, we don't have time to go into it, when Constantine would declare Christianity the official religion of Rome, there was all kinds of compromise that came into the church. And that's what we saw described as the church of Pergamos. They were the compromising church. Well, we see here as we go into Thyatira that this represents the Dark Ages from about 600, uh, almost 1,000 years to 1500 A.D. It was a very dark time in the church. There was corruption that was in the church. And that's what describes the Church of Thyatira. So I think that we can make a case that these seven churches represent seven successive periods of church history. We will see the Church of Sardis next time that represents, you know, it's the dead church. And then we'll see the Church of Philadelphia that represents that time that it was a great missionary work was being done. And then we'll see the Laodicean church, which, which is the lukewarm church, which represents the church today in general. So we can make a case for that, representing seven successive periods of church history. But I think what makes this so powerful going through this study is that as we read about these churches here, it describes what churches can be like today. It describes those things that Jesus would affirm a positive affirmation given to them. That's the uh, application that we see here. Uh, the, the pattern that we see is Jesus says, first of all, that I know your works, number one. I know your works. And I like that. That brings comfort to me. Because sometimes we can think, Lord, do you see what I'm doing for you? How I'm serving you? How, how I desire to live for you? And sometimes we can get discouraged because the world isn't going to applaud us. But maybe you're raising your children in the ways of the Lord. Maybe you're taking care of a, a spouse or elderly parents. Or, or maybe you're in that place where you're discipling somebody at work. Or maybe you're working in the nursery and you're changing diapers. 
or ministering to the kids or serving coffee in the coffee shop, whatever the case may be, you're serving in practical ways. I want you to know this, that the Lord sees your work. And I want to remind you what Paul would say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as he concludes the chapter. He says, you be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain. And I want to encourage you here tonight that the Lord sees your work. Sometimes we think nobody really thanks me. Nobody really says anything to me. Listen, the Lord sees your work and he's going to reward you for what you do for him, for Christ. And one day we're going to be there standing at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ where we will be rewarded for what we have done for Christ, whether good or bad, as Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We also know that some of the last words of Jesus is in Revelation chapter 22. He says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So we're not talking about salvation. We can't earn salvation. We cannot work for salvation. But there are rewards that are going to be given to you and to me what you have done for Christ. Please keep that in mind. When you become uh, frustrated or you wonder if you're doing any good, the Lord sees when you give a cup of water to a child in love. The Lord sees when you give a kind word to somebody or make a meal for somebody. When you write a card, you know, of encouragement to somebody who's down. The Lord sees that. He sees when you, you know, uh, just uh, help in very practical ways and bless others. Maybe you help somebody, guys, fix their car or maybe you just help them in other ways. That is something that pleases the heart of the Lord. So he says, first of all, I know your works. And then he would give positive affirmation to them and the things that they were doing well. And then thirdly, he would give rebuke, correction to them and the things that they needed to repent of. And then fourthly, the patterns that we see in these letters are, um, you know, the promise, eternal promise to those who overcome. And an overcomer, again, to remind you, is in 1 John chapter 5 verse 5 that those who overcome are those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So that's the fourfold pattern that we see in the letters. The four applications, uh, seven periods of church history. Uh, it, it is seven literal churches that existed in the first century. Uh, we see that it represents, you know, um, you know, churches. Uh, we can look at these and say, are we an Ephesus church? That we're working, doing a lot of good things, but we've left our first love. There's no love here. Are, are we like a Sardis church that have a reputation, but really Jesus says you're dead. There's a deadness that's in the church. Are we like the faithful church, Philadelphia, which I pray that we are? Or are we like Laodicea, the lukewarm church? So it has something to say to us here at Calvary Chapel as a church. And this is very convicting because, you know, I think if the Lord was to write me a letter, as he says to the messenger of the church of, and that word messenger speaks of angelos, probably a reference to the pastor what would the Lord, as he would write me a letter, say to me, to, to the, 
you know, pastor of Calvary Chapel Greeley? And what would he confirm us in? What would he rebuke us of? You know, I, I think about that. So it's so valuable that we go through this. And then also as a Christian, that do we fit into one of these seven categories? Are we like an Ephesus Christian or a Sardis Christian? Or are we like a Laodicean Christian? So that's why they're very powerful as we go through these letters. So let's look at the fourth church. The, the church here is um, of uh, verse 18 to the angel of the church of Thyatira write. So Thyatira was the smallest and considered uh, for a long time the least of the seven churches that are addressed here, even though uh, that perhaps they had, uh, it was known as maybe the least of the churches. This is the longest letters that of the seven letters that are written. It's written to this church. And the reason that it was considered maybe the least of the churches is because in their history, Thyatira was really an unimportant city. There, there wasn't a lot of trade. There wasn't a lot of uh, commercial uh, uh, benefits there like the other churches that we've looked at. But over time, as we got to the end of the first century, that it ended up being a stronger commercial uh, city, which helped the city to become fairly prosperous, it was located in a long valley called the Lycus Valley. And in that valley, Rome ended up building a major road, so more trade came in. And so Thyatira was able to benefit uh, because of that. And in that valley as well, you have the Church of Laodicea, you have the Church of Colossae. Now, these seven churches, again, in Proconsular Asia, are not the only churches there. Colossae is not written to in these uh, letters here, but they were a church that we have Paul's letter. He writes the seven churches in the epistles, and one of them was to Colossae. There was Areopagus, and there was also Laodicea. Now, we are going to see the, the letter written by Jesus here as we conclude chapter 3 to the church of Laodicea. So in that valley there, it would bring in trade and, and commercial industry, and, and the, the valley benefited from it. And as uh, the main road was coming through this city, it would connect to other cities as well. But Thyatira maybe rings a bell with you if you read the book of Acts because Thyatira was known for making colored garments for dyes. And as you go to the book of Acts, Paul, when he would go to Macedonia, as he would go to you know, that uh, Philippi, uh, you recall that on his second missionary journey, uh, he has Silas with him. Uh, he would go from Troash. He has a vision of the Macedonian man to say, come over here. He would leave and he would go to Philippi. And that was in what today we call Greece. He would establish the church at Philippi. As you read the book, uh, book of Acts in chapter 16, it tells of Paul going there. He's with Silas, uh, Dr. Luke would join him at that time. And as he's there in, uh, in uh, Philippi, he is down by the river. We know that Paul would go to you know, the synagogue, if there was a synagogue in that city first, and then he would go to the Gentiles. Usually he got thrown out of the synagogue. 
But here there was no synagogue in Philippi. So he goes there, and it says, I'm going to read it to you in chapter 16 of Acts, in verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city. This is Dr. Luke writing. He's with them. He says, we went out of the city at the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now there was a certain woman named Lydia heard us, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. So here was this woman, Lydia. She was from the city of Thyatira, and garments back in those days were white, you know, wool, linen. Uh, they are mostly white. To have colored garments, it would be very, very expensive to buy those colored garments. Purple, of course, is usually the color of royalty or, or you know, that uh, importance. And so with her being a seller of purple, we know that she was very wealthy. She had a house in Philippi where Paul and Silas and the missionary team would stay. So they were known for uh, selling of colored uh, garments, very expensive. And we know that Paul would meet Lydia that was from Tyre, Tyra. So as we read about it, we see that he continues, Jesus saying in verse 18, that these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So he introduces himself as the Son of God. And I think it's worth stopping and noting that as we go through the Gospels, as we go through the epistles, that title is used a lot in um, the New Testament concerning Jesus. He is the Son of God. But what interests me is here in the book of Revelation, this is the only time that that title is used for Jesus. Here to this letter of uh, Thyatira. One time in the book of Revelation, of course, emphasizing his deity. But as he says that uh, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And of course, taking that description of what John gives to us in chapter 1, it's ascribed to each one of those seven churches here in Thyatira that first of all, that he has eyes like a flame of fire. You know, when we go home to be with the Lord, and oftentimes people will call me and they will say, what happens after we die as Christians? Um, and I tell them that it, we are told in God's word that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 declares to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when we take our last breath here on this earth, that we will immediately be with Jesus. You know, we hear the jokes about Peter and, you know, sitting at a desk with the big books and the pearly gates and all of this. You know, forget that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're going to be standing before the Lord. And as we are, I imagine that we're going to see those eyes of love, those eyes of fire that are described to us. And as I've already mentioned to you, that we will stand before the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. And of course, all of our works that we do are going to be tried by fire, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And they are likened to wood, hay, and stubble. And all the things that are unlike the Lord are going to instantly burn up when we see him. When he looks at us, I, I just know that those things that are unlike him are instantly gone and burnt up. And the things that are like him, that pleased him, are going to shine forth at that time. And they're like in the gold, silver, and precious metals. And then, of course, my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament, that it tells us that he's going to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. He, he who is able to keep you from stumbling, that he's going to present you and me faultless 
And I think that's absolutely incredible. The work of the cross and the incredible grace of God. And Jesus is going to present you to the Father. Not that you need introduction. And the Father and the Son are going to rejoice over you. And that's your future for you who are in Christ Jesus. So those eyes of flame. And then it talks about his feet like fine brass. And of course, brass speaks of judgment. We know out in the Old Testament that in the, the outer court at the tabernacle, there was that brass altar that they did the sacrifices and, and where they sacrificed the animals. And, and we know that Jesus speaks of those sacrifices. It points to Jesus. It, it speaks of Jesus. It's all fulfilled by Jesus. You know, people say, uh, why would you want to study Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, those, those sacrifices and offerings that are there? Because it speaks of Jesus. And he's the one, of course, that would go to the cross as brass speaks of judgment. He would be our sin sacrifice. He would be our trespass sacrifice. He fulfills those offerings and those sacrifices that are described in the Old Testament for you and for me as he took the judgment for you and for me. But also we know that in the Old Testament that I made reference last week that it was mentioned to the church at Pergamos about you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, Baal and Balaam and all of this. And uh, we know that uh, in Numbers chapter 21, right before that story of Balaam, that there's the story of the fiery serpents that came out. And, and Pergamos was known as the medical center. And the god that they worshipped, the pagan god, it was a pole with the serpent around it. And of course, we can go back to Numbers chapter 21, where the serpents were biting the people of God there in the camp. And they cried out to Moses. Moses cried out to God. God said, put a, a brass serpent on a pole. Put it in the middle of the camp. And those who look at that, that pole are going to be saved. They're going to be healed. And we know that Jesus would come along 1,500 years later and he would say to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Nicodemus, I'm going to go to the cross because every single one of us have been bitten by the snake of sin. And as we look to Jesus Christ, because he took the judgment for you and for me, then we are healed. We have forgiveness and we have everlasting life. So here this description given of Jesus, that uh, the uh, eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And then he begins to commend them. In verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So here are these positive affirmations. First of all, he affirms them. I know your love. This was a church that had love for the Lord and had love for others. And it's interesting as John is taking this dictation here that he was known as what? The apostle of love, right? And it would be about 10 years before he received the apocalypse of Jesus Christ here that he's in Ephesus. He's an elder there. He writes these, these letters to the Christians, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And what is the emphasis of those letters? 
It is love, loving your brethren, loving others. And he reminds them of that. And, of course, Jesus came along and said that they will know that you're my disciples as there in the, the last night that Jesus is with them. They will know that you're my disciples by how? For your love for one another. You know what my prayer really is for, for us here at Calvary Chapel? Is that we would have a love for people. What we're going to see when we go into chapter 9 of the book of Romans, that Paul expresses his grief and his sorrow for his countrymen. He had a deep love for them. And we're going to talk about that and how Moses, he had a love for the children of Israel, even though they were rotten to him. Even though, you know, the children of Israel wanted to stone him and always questioning his authority and challenging him. Paul, too, went through persecution by the hands of his countrymen. And I think, how could they show such love to somebody that, you know, or to people and a whole bunch of people? With Moses, it was two and a half million people. With, with uh, Paul, it was many of the Jews that came uh, against him. And we'll discuss it a bit on Sunday morning. But I think, how were they able to, to love? The commandment given to us by Jesus is love your enemies. And I want to be real honest with you that the Lord's still working that in my life. But it's a commandment and not a suggestion. And I think about, you know, uh, pray for those who hate you, you know, who persecute you. And, and I think that perhaps a lot of us, we've had somebody in our lifetime that really has hurt us or come against us or has hated us, that, that has considered themselves our enemies. I think about the very first time that I really knew somebody hated me. So when I was a kid, growing up in Kansas, there was a kid on the block, he was a couple years older than me, he was the block bully. And, and he was strong, he was athletic. And I remember one time that, you know, in our block back in Kansas in the summertime, we would have a block party and, and everybody came out and we'd had watermelon. And I remember standing in the alleyway and there is Nathan. And he's over there and he's, you know, uh, yelling at me and, and uh, you know, uh, making fun of me and all of this. And I remember I was eating a piece of watermelon and I just had enough of him. And I said, you big dope, you don't scare me. And I ran towards him. I, I guess I thought I was David or something, you know, <laughs> running towards Goliath. And I ran towards him and I threw that core of that watermelon at him. And I was trying to just have it go over his head. But true story, no lie, it hit a branch that was hanging down. And that, that core watermelon went right down the back of his shirt and got stuck in there. And I don't know how it happened. It was like a one in a million shot. But he's trying to pull it out with one hand. He's shaking his fist at me with the other hand, yelling at me, I'm going to get you. I'm going to kill you. And I, you know, he chased me for about a year after that. I had to hide. He hated me. There was another man in the neighborhood. He didn't like me either. We were playing baseball, and he had a brand new Cadillac that was parked right out front. Yeah, you can tell what's going to happen. And we were playing baseball. And he came out and said, you kids, you know, you need to quit playing. And as soon as he was saying that, I hit the ball. And that ball went up in the air, about 20,000 feet. And he's just standing there going like this, and it came right down on top of his hood. Bang! And you never saw so many kids scatter, you know. And we ran. It was like trout in the stream, man. Just pow. And as I was hiding under the desk, 
uh, or the table at home, the phone rings, and poor mom, you know, she's like, he did? Really? That happened? Okay. But we grow up, and, and I don't want to make light of this, that there are people that come against us and, and, and hate us. And perhaps you're here, and you've had that happen. Maybe you got somebody right now, somebody at work. Or maybe somebody in your family that likes to harass you. And I know that the commandment is given to us that we are to love. And it's something that we can't do in our own strength. It's something that we can't muster up. That we have to go to the Lord and yield to Him and say, Lord, help me in this. Help me to forgive. Help me to love and pray for that person. And I know that as we do, it begins to change us. And it begins, He begins to minister to us. But what I pray for this church is that as people come in, that they would see the love of Jesus Christ in us towards each other and that we have a love towards him. You know, I'm not interested in people coming in to see the, you know, the, the hype or the entertainment or razzle-dazzle and all the stuff that church marketing tells you you need to focus on. But what I pray is that they see and they sense the love of Jesus Christ coming from this place. Because remember the church of Ephesus, Jesus said, you've left your first love. Oh, you're doing a lot of great things, but you've left your first love. And if you don't go back and, and you know, return to that, then I'm going to remove your lampstand. And I don't care how big or how popular or how much you know, stuff is going on with the lights and the music and the programs and all of this, if there is no love in the church, Jesus won't be there. And that's what I hope and pray for us, that people would really see the love of God and that you and I, that we would, you know, it's easy to love the person that's cool, who pats on the back, but to go to the Lord and ask, just as Paul was praying continually for his countrymen. Moses was up in the presence of the Lord for 40 days before he interceded on behalf of the children of Israel, that we continually stay close to him, and Lord, help me to love. John, the apostle of love, you know, when he was walking with Jesus there in Luke chapter 9, there in the area of Samaria, this village rejected Jesus and the disciples, and who was it that wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume these people? It was John. And his brother James, the sons of thunder. And he would go from the sons of thunder to the apostle of love. And I know for me, oftentimes, that my mindset in my own flesh is a son of thunder. And Lord, change me, work in me, day by day, moment by moment, bit by bit, to help me be a person of love that expresses your love and have a deep love for you. And it begins there. So we'll talk more about that. But he, you show your love. He says your service. And again, it's a Greek word, deaconess, where uh, they were serving each other practically. And I want to encourage you that, you know, the Lord desires to use you. And again, we have different uh, stages of life. We're in different places. And it may be that you're focused on your children. It may be you're focused on family or whatever the case may be. But the Lord wants to use you in very practical ways. And I'll tell you this. There is great joy, great joy in serving the Lord. Just serving him in practical ways, in very simple ways. To serve one another. To, to reach out and touch others. And there's all kinds of opportunities that are given here. 
You know, as the ministry grows, we just, we want to encourage you and we want to let you know the needs are, you know, cleaning and constantly cleaning this church. And, and some of you guys are good at carpentry or fixing things, uh, you know, in the coffee shop and greeting and children's ministry, all kinds of things that, that you can get involved in and in serving others. You know, we have a meals ministry, making a meal for somebody. So I know your love. I know your service. I know your faith. They were a church that was trusting Jesus. And I know your patience. I know your patience. The church at Ephesus, they had patience. And you and I, in the day in which we're living in, that we need patience. And we need patience in the times where it becomes very difficult and the world and culture comes against us. Because that patience will produce endurance which will produce maturity in you and me. And what I hope is that we would be patient as the Lord is working in our lives. We're waiting on him. And as we go to him and it's like, Lord, okay, I'm going to trust you. You know, even as we talked about in Romans chapter 8, that, that he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also give us those things that are good, those good things. And you see, sometimes that takes patience, waiting on the Lord, trusting in Him, looking to Him. And as we do that, that it's going to just grow us in our faith. You know, patience is so important because we live in a world that we like to, you know, have things instantly. So they were known for these things. But then in verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So here he says, listen, nevertheless, which means despite all the good, and notice here that he says, you have allowed that woman Jezebel. I noticed that, you know, that kind of jumped out at me. I've read this probably a hundred times. But you've allowed this, this, this one who calls herself a prophetess named Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is a reference to the Old Testament. We're going to go back and look at that and who Jezebel was. But she was one that was not a good person. And we know that as it says here that you've allowed Jezebel, um, that probably it, it wasn't this individual's name, um, but she calls herself a prophetess. Listen, just because somebody calls themselves a prophet or calls themselves a prophetess doesn't mean that they are. And here apparently she was doing that, but she was involved in immorality and idolatry and seducing the people into that, like Jezebel was like in the Old Testament. And, and here the Lord's rebuking this individual. You've allowed her to do it. You know, what we see in the church today, I mean the church at large, that unfortunately that there are more churches, denominations, and even independent churches that are promoting immorality, uh, that have gotten so far away from the scriptures that um, it's sad to see it. And, and there are those that they can be behind the pulpit and they can call themselves a pastor. They can call themselves a reverend. They can call themselves, you know, a father or most holy father. I don't care what they call themselves. But if they are promoting that which is immoral and they're not teaching the word of God and they are diminishing the scriptures and denying the deity of Jesus Christ and a lot of what we're seeing today is so disturbing. Again, we don't have time to go into it, but you see it yourself, don't you? You read it. 
that there are churches that are saying we're going to be all inclusive. It doesn't matter what lifestyle you live or, you know, if you're immoral, we're going to accept you and love you and we're not going to judge you. That person is not a pastor. That person is not truly a, you know, reverend or whatever title they have. So here is Jezebel with the characteristics. And again, Jezebel was one from the Old Testament. As you go back to 1 Kings, she was the wife of Ahab. And Ahab and uh, the ten northern tribes of Israel at that time and Jezebel plunged the nation deep in that Baal worship. And that included sexual immorality. And and she was a woman that was violent. She killed uh, the prophets of God. She was greedy. She was mean. She wanted to kill Elijah. You remember that uh, in that um, chapter in 1 Kings 18 and 19 and 20, as you travel there, Elijah issues that challenge. He, he challenged the prophets of Baal. He calls down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice there on top of Mount Carmel. He slews the prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah and says, Elijah, I'm going to lop your head off. I'm coming after you. And Elijah ran in fear of Jezebel. That's how violent and mean she was. He runs all the way down to the southern part of the country, to Arabia, to the mountain of God. And he's there in the mountain of God and he's hiding. And the Lord comes to Elijah and says, Elijah, why are you in this cave? Why are you in this cave of depression? Elijah on the way down, he says, Lord, just kill me. And Elijah, I got things for you to do. And you see, as there was a strong wind and a fire and an earthquake, the Lord wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. But Elijah heard the still small voice of the Lord saying, Elijah, I'm not done with you. And in those times where we're in our cave of depression, that the Lord desires to speak to you in a still small voice and say, I'm not done with you that I have much for you to do. So here is Jezebel. She was one that, as you read in 1 Kings chapter 21, she was not a Jew. She was the daughter of Ethiel, the king of the Sidonians, north of Israel. She was given to Ahab in marriage, and Ethiel was a high priest also of Astaroth, the goddess of sexuality and fertility. And so there was a lot of false worship going on in the uh, you know, uh, up in the high places and uh, wooden areas and all of this. And so Jezebel, back in the Old Testament, had a lot to do with seducing Israel into spiritual fornication and immorality. And when you read 1 Kings chapter 21, there is Ahab. He's there in the Jezreel Valley, and, and he has a palace, and he wants to buy his neighbor Naboth's vineyard. He goes to Naboth and he says, I want your vineyard and I want to buy your land and I want to make a vegetable garden, which is dumb because vineyards are very, you know, valuable and you want to buy a vineyard so you can make a vegetable garden. So he wanted to do that. And Naboth says, I can't do that. God forbid. You know, this is my inheritance. And back in ancient Israel, inheritance was everything. He says, no. So what does Ahab do? He goes home, he lays on his bed, he's crying, he's sniveling, he's whining, he's complaining. Jezebel comes in, says, what's the matter? Well, Naboth won't sell me his land so I can have a vegetable garden. And she said, I'll take care of it. And what she does, 
is she comes up with this plan. And, and she writes these letters to the people in the area. She hires these scoundrels. Uh, she, she seals the letter. She invites Naboth to, Naboth to a, a, a banquet where they would honor him. And, and then the scoundrels would come in and falsely accuse him of blasphemy God and blasphemy the king. And when that happened, the plan was carried out. And they end up carrying Naboth. She goes home and says, hey, Naboth is dead. He goes and he takes possession of Naboth's vineyard. Elijah comes to Ahab and says, Ahab, what you and Jezebel have done, you have done wickedly. And Ahab, you're a dead man. You're going to be killed in battle, which he would end up dying in battle against the Syrians. And your wife Jezebel, she's going to be eaten by the dogs. She's in the doghouse. And that would come true as well. But what I find interesting, listen guys, it says nothing in the text there in 1 Kings 21 that, that Ahab knew what his wife Jezebel was doing. She came up with the plan. She wrote the letter. She sealed it. She hired the guys. She came up with, the, you know, the banquet. She made sure that this plan was carried through. And it was the Lord that would speak through Elijah and come to Ahab and said, Ahab, you are responsible. And judgment is going to come to you because of what you did. Listen, guys. We talked about on Saturday how we are the head of our families and that means awesome responsibility. And you are the head of your wife. We talked about that in detail, what that means. That you are to serve her, be a covering for her. You are to protect her. You are to lay down your life for her. But listen, God will hold you and I accountable for not only the stewardship of our family, but how we treat our wife and the stewardship of her, what's been entrusted to us. And if we get into some kind of funk, you know, and we're sniveling and crying because we didn't get what we wanted, and it causes our wife and our children to move out in sin and carnality, you're going to be held responsible for it. And that's what happened to Ahab. Ahab, that you're in big trouble. Don't think you're going to get away with it. And that's why when we hear that we are to lead our families and lead our wives in our marriages, that that is a huge responsibility, men. And that, you know, for me and for you, that we are to be praying and seeking the Lord. But if you are upset and you're not getting your way and you're determined to dig in your heels and you're going to, to, to complain and murmur and gripe that causes your family to move out in a way of carnality and sin, you are going to be held responsible for that. And that's what 1 Kings chapter 21 tells us. And here the church, the messenger of the church, you've allowed this to happen. You've allowed this to happen, this woman Jezebel to come in and to pollute the church. And that tells me the awesome responsibility that I have as the pastor here to make sure that not only am I feeding the sheep, but I am guarding and protecting as best I know how. And that the, the, that the Lord is going to hold me responsible for what takes place here and what I say behind the pulpit. We are going to stand for the word of God and for the truth of God's word. I don't care what culture tells us to do or puts pressure on us. So here, this Jezebel, the church of Thyatira, getting people to commit spiritual fornication, 
probably power hungry, involved idolatry, things, you know, uh, sacrifice the idols. And remember the Jerusalem Council, the big problem in the early church was they were coming out of paganism, which involved immorality. So the Jerusalem Council, what is it that we tell these Gentile believers? And so they said, this is what we're going to tell them, to sustain from sexual immorality, meet offer to idols out of, you know, sensitivity and love. And, and then, you know, don't be eating things strangled, you know, roadkill and, um, you know, and blood. And if you do these things, you do well. But we got to move on. Verse 21, and it gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. And indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery. It's the only time that this word adultery is used in the book of Revelation. We see immorality is used. But adultery is used here and with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And going through the Old Testament that we're going to, as we pick it up in Jeremiah and go through Ezekiel, and then we go into Daniel and the minor prophets, that we will see that they will use that term, you've committed, Judah and Israel, spiritual adultery. You've played the harlot because you've gone after other lovers other than the Lord is what the prophets would proclaim. And something similar is being said here. So we know that uh, God gave them time to repent, but she would not. And uh, we see that uh, indeed I will cast her into sickbed and those who commit adultery. They had committed uh, adultery, spiritual and physical adultery. So what does it mean cast into a sickbed? Obviously, you know, we don't know for sure. Some kind, uh, it's an image of affliction. But whatever it is, it's not good. In verse 23, and I will kill her, kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Um, all her children, which are her followers. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the heart. The Lord knows the heart of this church. And the Lord knows the minds and hearts of each one of us. And if we ever fool ourselves to think that we can hide from the Lord, we can hide it from others. We can hide it from our family, from other brothers and sisters, people at work, any kind of sin or carnality. But you will never hide it from the Lord. He knows our hearts. He knows our hearts better than we do. And nothing is hidden from him. Remember Romans chapter 8, or chapter 2, excuse me, that all things are open and naked before the Lord. And so they were saying they were Christians, but they weren't, and they didn't belong to him. And God really knows who are his. And in verse 24, now to you I say, and to the rest of thy retire, as many as do not have the doc- this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. Hold fast, he says, what you have till I come. Those of you who really know me and belong to me, I'm not going to burden you. You haven't known the depths of Satan, the things that Jezebel did and represented. It all comes from the pit of hell. And hold fast what you have till I come. It's the first time the second coming is mentioned in these letters. And I think it's a word for you and for me. In our society and culture that we live in, is trying to get us to compromise and trying to suck us into idolatry and immorality. But listen, we need to hold fast, right? Let's hold fast to the Lord. Hold fast to the truth of God's word. 
and the things that he would have us be about here at Calvary Chapel, we need to hold fast. And then in verse 26, And he who overcomes and keeps my work until the end, to him I will give the power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. Here he's quoting from Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. And he's going to rule and reign over the nations with a rod of iron. And we get to rule and reign with Christ as well. It's going to be a glorious time. And then he says, as I have also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The morning star, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus is called the morning star. And the morning star... You know, uh, it wasn't long ago that uh, I was up early and, and just uh, was looking outside the window and, and there's that morning star out there, right? Venus. And you know, when you see that morning star, it's dark. And it's always dark, it's right before the dawn. But that morning star indicates to me that the sun's going to be coming up very soon. And perhaps here tonight, you're in a dark place. And I want you to know that you have Jesus, the morning star. And the light's going to be coming. You know, it's always darkest before the sun rises in the morning at the dawn of the day. And I want you to know that it's coming. Look to the morning star. Because he loves you and he cares for you. And he will always be with you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this letter that, oh, is so powerful. There's so much here. And we know that we learn from this. Just as they were doing things that were good and profitable and known for. But, Lord, there was also things that they needed to repent of. Corruption in the church. And, Lord, as we look at our church, as we look at our lives... Lord, we want to, if there's anything going on in our lives that we need to repent of, that, Lord, that we would do that. Here, he gave them time. And, and when you say to repent, we need to repent. Maybe here tonight, that as the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're here tonight, you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. The gospel is repent and turn to Jesus for salvation and forgiveness. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. But the most important decision that you will ever make in your life is a decision for him. Jesus is your salvation, and there is none other. And he's the one that died for your sins and rose again from the grave. So if you are listening, maybe you're listening on um, live stream, maybe you're, you're here Maybe you'll listen later on the radio, but if you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, he says, repent. Turn to me. That's all he's saying. Quit going the direction you're going. Turn to me. Confess that you're a sinner because we've all sinned. And call out for salvation. You can do that right where you are. That Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. And I believe you died on that cross for me. And you rose again in your life. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for your love. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And listen, if anybody here 
by chance prayed that prayer as we have a prayer team up front when we conclude here in just a minute. Come up and tell them the decision you made. But for all of us, Lord, we want to live lives pleasing to you. And Lord, we know that everything is open and naked before you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church that loves, that we serve one another, that we abound more in faith. And I know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God as we just continue to grow in the love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That we would have patience with each other and what you're doing in our lives. And Father, I also pray, Lord, that if there are those things that you're dealing with us, that we would turn away from them and call out to you. We thank you that you bring that conviction because it's always to draw us to you. So Lord, I thank you for tonight. And I pray that you would just bless everyone here as we go our way. Thank you for this, this letter that not only was for that church, but for, for us here today, tonight. And so, Lord, um, as we gather again on Sunday, just help us to come with hearts ready to receive from you and learn from you. Bless everyone here on their way home. and Bless the rest of our week. May we just display your love and your truth to others as we go out in the places and to the people that are linked to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.